Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Hi, everyone. We have a very special brand new event coming this week. It's a three-day workshop all about how to optimize your query and pages for today's over-caffeinated, overwhelmed, I mean, who isn't overwhelmed right now, agent with daily classes on queries, pages, voice, comprehension, and more. Each day comes with a supportive group workshop event. All homework is optional, of course. And the event is capped off with group creativity coaching with book coach Anna Conathan, a lunchtime page workshop with award-winning author Cameron Kelly Rosenblum, and an agent feedback panel with agents John Cusick and Chelsea Emelhaines. It all starts Tuesday, June 28th, but everything comes with a recording and is up for 30 days so you can work on your schedule. And if you're on a too fancy coffee-a-day schedule, it costs about the same as three days of lattes. Learn more at manuscriptacademy.com slash submission hyphen packet hyphen workshop. Hope to see you there. So Douglas, what was querying like for you? Querying was a roller coaster. That is, I think the easiest way to say it. I went to grad school for an MSA in creative writing and it was a great experience. I really enjoyed it, but I came out a little disillusioned and I came out also very excited to start querying. And when I first started querying, I don't know if it was the energy that I had or if there was just this way I was able to talk about Life Between Seconds, because Life Between Seconds was my thesis in grad school. That was accepted in 2013. So it's been nine years since I finished the first real draft of the book. And I went out and queried and I was so excited. I would say I queried maybe 15 agents and I got six individual responses. You know, at least talking directly to me and out of those three said, oh, it's not right for us, but maybe think about us in the future. And one said that he would love to see more. And so I got a full request and I was so excited that I sent it right to him. And then he basically said, oh, this is great, except I don't like the magical realism. If you can take that out, we can move forward. And I was just not ready to take that out. I was very excited that he wanted to see more and possibly work with me, but I was just not ready to take that out. And I still didn't take it out. But after I got that, I wouldn't say I was unhappy with the process, but I got fewer and fewer responses after that to the point that I just kept changing my query and changing my query and making it more professional and trying to have it stand up to the standards that I would read and research. And then I was like, oh, 10 minutes was an Asian. This is perfect. And I would do that and I would get some really great comments and feedback. And then I would go back to my manuscript as well. And so it was this process. I would query a batch. And then if I got no responses, I'd look back at my query. And I'd also look back at my manuscript to see, to make sure that's all in line. I went through this process, I think. 11 times. So that's probably why it took so long, nine years, which I guess it's objective whether that is a long time or not. But after a certain amount of time, I was just getting no responses anymore. Not a one. And I wasn't blaming any agents, but after a while, I was frustrated with the process. I've devoted all this time to the book, to the querying process, to all these different layers. 
and it takes a long time to hear back. And so at one point I just decided that I'm going to query independent presses at the same time as agents, just to test my luck there. And that's where I found luck. And that's where I was truly excited to be anyway, because I've always had this vision for this particular book. And I never thought it was going to be a bestseller with one of the top publishers only because of its content and writing style. And so I knew I'd have to put in my legwork for marketing and promoting and all these things. And if I was going to do that anyway, I might as well maybe skew towards a more independent, smaller press. Can you tell us what that process was like? Was it the same as querying agents? Did you get a better response rate? How did that go? I did get a better response rate than querying agents. And it seemed like maybe it was because the presses were anywhere from independent to micro presses, but they were very gracious in my querying. And then some even gave me direct feedback, which I didn't expect, but was very happy to engage with. And then when I found the right publisher, Addison Highsmith, it just melded well. But that was one of the reasons I went with the independent press was because I realized the process was pretty similar as to querying an agent. So including the amount of time that it takes to get a response. So I thought if I'm going to wait for one, I can wait for the other and, and see what happens. I'm just so glad you found success in the way that you did. I think a lot of writers get stuck on that, like that hamster wheel of in order to feel like a writer, I have to get published this way. And if I don't get published this way, then what's the point? Especially when you talked about your experience coming out of an MFA, I recently had a conversation with somebody who said almost the same exact thing as you did, but feeling kind of disillusioned after it was over. And I had to tell them at the end of the day, that's school. You're paying to be there. Of course, they're going to turn things a certain way and not really. But honestly, they're not going to they're not going to say 100 percent what the industry is even like, if they have any idea what it actually is, because a lot of people who teach in these programs are also trying to get published. So they may not be telling 100% truth at the same time. So it was yeah. just awesome to hear that you embraced other opportunities outside of just, I have to be published this way or it's nothing. Yeah, my alma mater actually had a rule that you weren't allowed to talk about the business of publishing. We were there for the art, they said. So I imagine a lot of people had a very rude awakening very fast. My program, I enjoyed that they had a panel once a year with actual agents and they were not mincing words about life after the MFA, but there's always that, oh, but my book will be different or, well, the administration says something that's more encouraging. Oh, it's not that bad. Or now you have inroads to meet with these agents afterwards or something like that. While the instructors were more honest about it, but the instructors really didn't engage as much. Similarly, they were more about the art as I would understand really, especially when you have access, quote unquote, once a year to an agent panel. The hamster wheel is really the best way to describe it for me. Or maybe what is that? The treadmill from the Jetsons when George gets stuck on it and just goes, yes. because you can't get off of it. So it's not even really a hamster wheel because it just keeps going. I'm screaming for my wife to grab my hand and help me get off. But oh. and, and eventually I was able to just catch something and pull myself off of that treadmill. 
What advice do you have for other writers who are currently on the treadmill? How do they get themselves to a place where they can take a moment, pause, look around and evaluate some options that might feel better? Actually, I think exactly what you said is what they need to do. I remember I just responded to somebody recently on the Manuscript Academy Facebook group. I believe they were querying agents and presses at the same time. And they actually got a request from the press, but not from an agent. And they didn't know what to do. And my advice, just based on my experience, was to really self-assess. What do you want? Do you want that big advance and the big name recognition and the big PR push? Which is not from my experience, because I don't know, but from what I hear from other authors and other friends who are authors, that's not necessarily what's going to happen when you do get an agent and when you do sell your book as well. However, if that's your goal, then that's something to keep in mind. And you don't want to query an independent press. But if your goal is to just be published by traditional press, would still be an independent press. And then maybe that's another avenue for you to look at. And so that's how I found my path forward. I don't want my face in the Barnes and Noble window smiling at you. I want this to have a more unique and approachable space where people can talk about it. And maybe 20 years down the line, it would be awesome if this is more of uh, a kind of an underground concept that people are still talking about. Yeah, I'd love that more than just a flash in the pan that people don't remember 15, 20 years from now. And then I always had this idea that my next book would be the big market bestseller, which I still believe that because I sold that one to an independent press recently. So <laughs> then we can talk about that next time, maybe. But it, it snowballs. Once you realize the path forward and how you want to really approach your own writing and your career, then those are the decisions you make as you go. And for those out there wondering why you're not supposed to query agents and small presses at the same time, it's because it puts the agent in an awkward place if you get an offer from a small press, because that agent will have wanted to send you on full submission. And then you have to make a choice of, do I burn this bridge and take a chance? Or do I ask this agent to do the contract for this offer, which is probably with a press they're not used to starting from scratch with no contract boilerplate and perhaps a smaller advance than they're used to. But there are so many different models out there. I remember I sold a book years ago to a small press that specializes in books about the social and emotional health of children. And while the advance was very small, the publicity budget was one of the biggest I've ever seen. And so everyone has a different model for how all of this works. And I think we shouldn't discount indie presses as it's small. There's no money. You have to do everything. Every single one of them is different. I'm glad that you mentioned that real reason of why you're not supposed to query agents and indie presses at the same time. I knew that going forward, but also knowing that I was stepping onto a different path, I was just taking the chance. And if I had gotten a response from an agent at the same time, or maybe even a little after, then that would have been a very different scenario I would have had to navigate. For those out there wondering if they might want to go indie, what would you say? I would say it's a lot of fun. I guess publishing a book is always going to be fun if that's your goal and it's my goal. So I'm definitely having a good time with it. But one of the things that I really enjoyed was I know that I have a particular writing style, a particular voice, and it's not necessarily the traditional or standard voice. I love run on sentences. I love playing with punctuation. So my writing is 
more literary than it is anything else. And I find richness in that just deep connection and character. And this also comes from my travel writing experience, just building bridges, breaking down borders, finding connections between peoples that you would not expect a connection to be made. And that's what I like to instill into my stories because that's what I found in my life. And so with that, there's not necessarily a fast paced plot. And because of that, I love to play with all these other things, these other techniques, these other opportunities. And I'm able to do that with an indie press. And they were very hands off in terms of, I don't want to say artistic integrity of the story, because that's a little pretentious and not what I mean, but at least that playfulness, the, the way that I like to engage with the writing, they were pretty hands off on, including an entire chapter that's two sentences. It's four pages and it's only two sentences long. When I got the first pass of edits, I went directly to that section to make sure they didn't touch it. And there was no comments at all on that chapter. And I was like, okay, so I know that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I'm so sorry, but I'm picturing chapter 22. He died. Chapter 22. <laughs> Actually, that would have been perfect. But instead, it's two sentences. Most of the fundamental parts of the sentences are separated by semicolons or m dashes i'm a huge m dash fan i love ellipses so if i can slip these in somewhere i'm going for it i love especially when i'm reading when i'm writing i love when the content kind of imitates the emotion so by having two run-on sentences this is really the turning point in the novel when you can feel that the rest of it is just breathtaking it just sweeps through so going up to this point is a little slower because it's more surreal and it's building these bridges between the characters then you get to this point and even my beta readers were like once i got to that point the rest of the novel flew by but it's still out of a 300 plus or minus page book this is about page like 160. so a little over halfway before you really get there and that's another reason why an indie press was a great choice because it allowed me to have that slow burn until I just throw the fighter at the wall. I don't think that's a phrase, but I like it. So I'm going with it. It works. It works. <laughs> so speaking of the editing that you did and getting the edit notes back, what editing did you do to prepare for this? Because I know, especially when you're writing in a more experimental way and playing with things like that it can be a little harder I would think to edit something like that to give to somebody else to say hey this is what I want to publish so don't mess with my two chapters that <laughs> are two sentences please thank you yeah actually it's funny that you said that because I just had this image of me with a big Kinko's box of just loose receipts and like handwritten notes on the back of the receipts and all these which is not how it happened. And I know that, but it's just the image I have of myself because it does feel that way sometimes when I'm working on these edits, but 11 full rounds of edits. So the way I edit personally is that I have my manuscript on my computer. And then when I write an ending, so I do not write consecutive chapters. I write modular. So I'll just go in, I'll write a chapter. And then when I write the ending, I go in and move things around. Oh, this could work as chapter one and this can work as chapter three. And, and then I'll print out the whole manuscript and then I'll go line by line and make the notes, add things. This is with handwritten notes. Then I go back and I write in all the changes and I don't make any other edits when in that process. When I go insert all the changes I made by hand, I'm only there to insert those changes. 
that after that, I do another read through and then I'll find some issues. I'll make the changes or I'll print it out, go back with the handwritten notes. And this is my process and how I work sometimes. Plus I'm a huge fan of note cards, post-it notes, index cards, whatever. I'll get the color coded ones. I'll use one color for one character, another color for another character. And then I'll use another color. Both characters are in the same chapter together. And then I'll write a one line or two line summary of what the chapter is and then put it out on the floor. And then I'll see how it connects. Cause with this book, with Life Between Seconds, I have three main characters and it was always like what I wanted it to, I want it to be one main character, then the next main character, then back to the first and then the second, then the third. And so I had this really big structure in my head. And then when I saw it mapped out, I'm like, well, that doesn't work. And then I just was like, well, forget it. Let's just not do this then. And let's just figure out what builds the momentum. That was very freeing and liberating. If I don't force myself to stick to that original structure, it comes out a better book. Are you a visual person? I'm learning that I think I am. Interesting. Because <laughs> I was thinking that is plotting for visual people. Yeah, I'm totally on board with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's exactly how I plot things out. I have to, I use Scrivener and all the other good things, but I have to see a visual representation of it with color-coded things. And I put it on the walls and I have it on the floor and I do what you do too. I print everything out and with the handwritten notes, it's something about that extra level of detail that you need it. Like just doing it on the computer to edit, it's just, it's boring and your brain turns off while you're doing it. Yeah, I also only have my small laptop screen, so it's either I have to have everything so tiny I can't read what it is anyway, or I can't see everything all at once and then it just defeats the purpose. But I learned this process. I know it's a process and I've listened to screenwriters do it and other writers do it, but I hadn't heard that when I first started doing it in a class in my grad school program where our instructor just had us print out one page of our story, cut out every individual line, and then give it to a partner and they moved all the lines around, not knowing what our story was about, just moved all the lines around to make a different story. And that was like, okay, so I don't have to be so precious about this that I can't change things. And after that, I was like, okay, well, let's try this. And then I learned every single mistake you can make with writing. I have made on my own and later found out like, oh, that's a mistake everybody makes. You're in good company though. But the idea yeah. of giving all of your sentences to someone to rearrange. I don't know why I'm a little horrified by it. It reminds me of a time I lent a book I loved to somebody with all my post-it flags. And I was like, be nice to the flags. And he was just like, oh, just move them around and put them in random places. And I was so horrified by that, just as I am by the idea of someone moving your sentences around. But I appreciate that. That sounds like a good learning experience for I can hear the control of your voice still. It's oh. going, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, someday I'll be chill maybe, but it sounds like you've learned a lot. What are some things that perhaps you can convey to other writers out there so that they don't have to learn it the hard way? Oh, that's a hard one. That is such a good question. And it's also such a vast question because there's so many pieces of advice that someone could give or that I'd want to give. But I would say stay open-minded and exercise your writing. I found my voice because I read widely and I wanted to just practice new ways of writing. So one of the ways that I learned that I loved magical realism, because I found these particular authors when I was traveling that I don't think I would have found otherwise. 
And then a couple that one of my instructors when I was an undergrad gave me, and I'm still in touch with him. It's not only is he a gem of a human being, but he just impacted my life so fully with the reading material he gave me to the point that there is still only one book in my life that I have read four times. And it is The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. And I read it first on my own because Giro Diaz, when I was an undergrad, he was, you know, the big thing. And it is the only book I've ever read four times. And every time I realized that a rich book like that has so much meaning and so much depth and so much texture to it that you can always learn something new, whether it's, oh, this is more subtext to these stories, or this is how you really get a character and so on and so forth. And it also introduced me to Clarice Lispector, who I still am in love with just as uh, a unique storyteller uh, to the point that I wrote a travel essay once that was modeled after one of her short stories, just a structure of it. And I could tell who was a big literature fan if they were like, oh, this seems like this story. Yes, it is. It is exactly that story. But staying open-minded and reading widely and being willing to exercise, not this exact exercise, Jessica, but like cutting up your sentences and moving them around just to see what happens, just so it tears away that preciousness of, I can't edit anything. I don't want to change anything. I assume that's what the original intent of the exercise was. However, that's what I at least took away from the intent of the exercise. And I think it made me a better writer. And just to throw in another shout out, Aaron Shuren, poet from the Bay Area. I read his poetry, Citizen, his book of poetry, and it just blew my mind because I'll always remember this. He gave an ellipses and an exclamation mark. And it just shocked me. And I'm like, what does that even mean? What does it mean? And I had the opportunity to ask him what it meant. He was friends with the instructors. So he came in to get a talk. And I was like, tell me, please, just what does an ellipses with an exclamation mark mean? Because I thought ellipses means it's trailing off. The sentence is trailing off into nothing. And he said, yes. But the exclamation mark means the meaning is resounding. And I was just like, what is happening? And I'm still in love with that concept. I'm still in love with the explanation. And I'm still in love with that book of poetry. That's so interesting. I was going to interpret it as we're waiting for a pause and then something happens <laughs> versus the pause itself is what we're emphasizing. That's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, God, it really is. My brain ticket is more of it continues on, but like in a bigger way. Like if thought could be big. I don't have the words for it, but you guys get it. Okay, 100%. 100%. That's where my brain went with it. One thing I loved about your email to us is that you said you'd been with us for half a decade, <laughs> which is true. We have existed that long, a little longer. But it, it was funny just to hear that because, of course, time is so different when you are working on something every day and so zoomed in on it. I assume it's that way with the book, too. So it was striking to me that you said it that way. Can you tell us a little bit about the things that so say, for example, you are talking to a writer who needs help with their book or needs to have a conversation or needs to get to that next step. And if they aren't able to join with us or I don't know, I guess I'm just trying to say, like, how do we translate that experience of half a decade into a few lines in the podcast? Oh, if you haven't known by now, um, a few lines is not my forte. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free to use an ellipses and an yeah, exclamation point. Yeah, an exclamation mark. That is exactly how I would end that. What I've learned is the Manuscript Academy is a place that gives you accountability and accessibility at your pace. But one of the things, I just have to share this. One of the things I remember specifically is in 2018, 
I had a coveted moment where I was going to talk to you, Jessica. And I was like, whoa, I'm so excited. And then an hour later had to cancel after booking because it was during my first meeting with the rabbi, with my soon to be wife at the time to, cause we were going to get married and we had to have a few meetings with the rabbi. And I was like, I have to cancel now. And I was so heartbroken and so upset, but it was also at this moment where I email you and Julie directly and I got a response and it was like, wow, they're really accessible. I can just email them and they'll get back to me personally. Like I was expecting a form response, especially because I was querying at the time. I just like I got used to form responses, but beyond that, I think that also speaks to the nature of Manuscript Academy. It's a community that is helpful and gives you accountability. So it doesn't really feel terrifying. And it actually, I think takes the terror away because what are the things, at least in my mind, that people are most afraid of when writing? They're afraid to show it to people, especially people they know. And they're afraid to reach out to agents because they think that agents are either demons with three heads or me coming from and living in Los Angeles all my life, always wearing sunglasses and dining at restaurants with $500 plates and a thousand dollar glasses of wine. So it's like, either way, that's terrifying to me, but this normalizes everything. One, I am comfortable sharing my work here. Two, I am comfortable writing right this second and sharing whatever trash I might have just put on a page. I am comfortable sharing them with people. And oh, now I've broken down the barrier of talking to an agent. And I realized that they are real people who just love books, just like me. And all these things coalesce into kind of this really special place that is often from the outside feeling just inaccessible. <laughs> Julie are the most wonderful people on the planet. I feel like a lot of times they put so much of themselves into the Manuscript Academy and everybody who comes to Manuscript Academy is always like, they responded to me. I can't believe they actually responded to me. <laughs> of course they did. Yeah, and I'm just like, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think like you were going to send the email and the email demons were just going to eat and we were never going to Email demons. Well, that, <laughs> isn't it, isn't it called like a mailer demon? Oh, it yeah. is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the email demon is certainly going to just nibble at your words until there's nothing left. I've recommended people. I don't know how many of my friends have actually taken my advice, but I've recommended Manuscript Academy over and over again to people, especially because coming from a grad school background, the thing that everybody says they miss is the community. And that's the thing that they don't have access to anymore. But Manuscript Academy gives you that community that everybody on my end keeps saying that they crave. I tell everybody this. I was not the most talented writer in my program by any means. I just found ways to keep going while the most talented writers in my program decided to pursue other things. Well, I'm so glad you kept going. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. I appreciate it. And one note on when you emailed us, I don't remember if you told us exactly what you were doing, but if you had said, I'm going to the rabbi for one of my pre-wedding meetings, we would have been like, mazel tov. I'm pretty <laughs> sure that was actually what the response was. It wanted to like, too bad for you. But it's so much more fun for us if we can engage with you as actual people. We like to pretend that we're just writing to our literary friends who like need stuff. And we're like, oh yeah, we know how to fix that. Okay, no problem. I should have just invited everybody to the wedding. From my wife's perspective, it was a very big wedding. From my family perspective, it was half the size as a normal family wedding would have been. So, oh, no. Oh, yeah. no. so it was a good compromise. I think. At least you got married before the panorama happened. So <laughs> you got able to have that wedding versus me. I married my wife last year and it was just me, her, the guy who married us and my mom. That was it. 
that no. you described my wife's perfect scenario. Like, that's what <laughs> she wanted, where my family, let's invite your third grade best friend because we remember their family. Let's invite this oh, no. one person we met at the market because they shared their chicken soup with us. So tell us basically at this point, anything you can think of that would help out or encourage or uplift any of the writers out there, we would love to know. It's hard to wait. You stuck it out and you were handsomely rewarded. So like it all worked out. Not everyone knows if that's going to happen. Not everyone knows, should I wait for this next publisher? Should I wait for this next rejection? When do I give up? When do I pivot? How did you make those decisions? And whatever calculus you did, you were right. Thank you. I'm not great at math. So the fact that I was right in a calculation is always definitely a boost. <laughs> I, of course, I encourage people to go on. Just like I recently said, I wasn't the best writer in my program, but I found my connection to my story. And the biggest piece of advice that I always got or that I always hear, whether it was directed at me or not, is that idea of why are you the only person who can write this story? And then make sure that you show that in the story that you write, whether it's the way that you write, whether it's your perspective, et cetera. And I think one of the reasons why I was able to go on with this specific story was not just because I was really passionate about sharing it, but also because I had this idea that, okay, I'm going to work on this. I'm going to query this book. Book is done. I reached this point where I was like, there's no more changes I can make to this book. I've I've run it through beta readers. I've run it to editors. So at this point, it's really just getting it published. So I started another book and I would make time to, okay, today or at this moment, I'm going to query X amount of agents. And then at this moment, I'm going to write X amount of pages towards my next book. So I didn't feel like I was sitting there solely waiting for a response because I had this new project that I could work on and towards. And it really helped immensely because not only did I find my writing style, so I carry that kind of style over to the new book, but I also know that I'm not just sitting on my laurels waiting here back. And because I have this new project I'm working towards, this is the thing that I'm going to be querying agents for next. And if this other book, this first book doesn't get picked up, okay, well, here's a second one. And it's not 10 years later, it's five years later because I decided to get moving on it because the other one I know is ready. I love that. I love that so much. I feel like so many writers, they don't see it that way. They have those serious blinders on. You were able to say, okay, I'm going to write this next story. And if it's not this first one that you put so much time and effort in, you don't know, it might be this one. And you took that pivot, even though you were still working on this one, but you took that pivot. And I feel like if more writers just embrace the idea of the fact that this is a journey, it's not a sprint. There's nobody waiting at a certain goalpost with water, like, hey, you know, you can do it. You have to pace yourself. And sometimes you hit a dead end and you have to take a detour. And that's perfectly fine. I feel like some of the best things that happen to us are found during detours. So why not just lean more into that and just see where the story takes you? Because in the day, you're all just storytellers. So what does it really matter where it comes out at as long as the story gets out there and it'll reach its audience? I love that. I love that. Yeah. And that's exactly what it is. I think the last piece of advice, and even in that same regard, is just breaking down the perception of how you think you have to do it or the blinders. Because uh, when I was in grad school, I had the time I would sit down for my day off from working three jobs. I would sit in a cafe for five hours and that's just, I would type all day. And then I'd find two hours during a break time and I would type. 
But then now I have a two and a half year old and she's not going to let me sit down for four hours and type. So finding how I can manage to write, whether it's, I want to spend time with my wife. I want to spend time with my daughter. I want to hang out with friends or family. I want to sit down and watch TV. So kind of I going to be able to just write. And I had a friend who challenged me. Oh, let's write every day for three weeks. I was like, oh, I'm like, I don't have that kind of time. And she's like, okay, let's do it for 10 minutes every day for three weeks. And I was like, okay, let's do that every day for three weeks. And I sat there and that's for about a year and a half now. I've made it a habit five or six days a week for 10 minutes. And I do it. I put my daughter to sleep. I sit down for 10 to 15 minutes. I just write six nights a week and it's become a game. I've gamified it. How many words can I write in 10 to 15 minutes? And that's legitimately how I finished my next novel. One that I just signed a contract on last week. I wrote the last half of it. I wrote in 10 to 15 minute pushes six nights per week during the pandemic. Oh, wow. That is awesome. If you want to up your challenge game for all writers listening, this is for you too. If you're finding yourself writing in these small pockets of time, try dictation. Yep. It's amazing. I can dictate in like 15 minutes over a thousand words, which is to me pretty good to say yeah. <laughs> with a short period of time. Um, the most I've done is 2,315 minutes. Oh, wow. Yeah, in 15 minutes. I'm generally a fast talker anyway, so it works for me. So if anybody's listening, definitely life hack right there. <laughs> Complete yeah. See, actually, hack. I really want to listen to your dictation because I listen to every audio on two times speed. So I'm just curious how fast it would sound when you're doing 2,300 words in 15 minutes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Valentina, add that to the podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> You know, I'll do it, Jessica. I feel like there really should be one episode of it, of just your dictation. I like a little bit of an introduction to explain what it is. So somebody doesn't just stumble upon it. But like, what's happening right now? But then, boom, yes. here we go. 15 minutes of your dictation. Oh, my God. I would actually love to do that. That'd be fun. Yes, we will find a way. Maybe we'll make a, a special post in the Facebook group where everyone can try things out, post the results, compete, perhaps. Oh, yay. <laughs> That'd be so fun. That'd be cute. I love the idea going back to this being a marathon. It's not a sprint, but I hope we can be the water table along the way for all of you. Water and snacks. I recently learned that there's a marathon in France where you get red wine at the tables. <laughs> so maybe we'll have that too. Yeah. Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about where we can find you and your work and what your book's about? Absolutely. So you can find me on LinkedIn mostly or Facebook, Douglas Weissman on both those places. You could also find me at my website, douglasweissman.com. I think that's it. It might be douglasweissmanwebnode.com. Always depends on the site source. And with my work, so the actual story, it's more of a story about found family. And so it deals with Peter, who's about a 24-year-old and lives in the Bay Area in this KG apartment. And Sophia, who lives in the same apartment building, who's in her mid-70s. And they build a friendship based upon kind of their ignoring past traumas. But then the ghosts of their past come back to haunt them and threaten to tear their lives apart. And so they're looking to find redemption within their friendship. It's heavy and important, but it's nice that together they're able to explore and heal, I assume. Yes, that is the goal. Yeah. <laughs> And you can find the book is available for pre-order at bookstore.org 
or amazon.com. Those are the two places you can find it. It does come out November 15th is the current published date. Why don't you read the first page? So this is the first page of Life Between Seconds. Peter loved to hear the story of how his father tried to steal his son. It's the reason the poppies exist, his mother said. Your dad had climbed into the sky and touched the light, actually had his hands gripped around the sun. What did it feel like? Peter asked. Have you ever touched a really hot light bulb? His mom said. But the sun burned his hands. He pulled away and scattered sunlight over the field, causing all these bright poppies to grow. The sun, angry for having been caught, fell that night. It falls every night. But that was the first time. It fell and sulked and didn't come back. Your dad gave us these beautiful fields of flowers, but he also brought the darkness. Peter held tight to his bear in the back seat. The promise of darkness didn't scare him, but the wind always made him nervous. He inhaled the scent of the bear's fur like wood and soil. The poppies shone orange along the horizon, where flower petals covered the earth like unmelted snowfall. The world pulsed and breathed as it passed through the window into the backseat of the car. The blizzard of orange in the distance cascaded in the breeze. The closer the car came to the poppies, the lower the sun fell. Peter's mom always called it a game, like chicken. They had to make it to the field before the sun set. The field had become their escape, our escape, Sam and Peter's. Peter asked who Sam was. His mom said she was Sam. He didn't stop calling her mom. This was a place we can run, and they ran there often. Peter would watch his mom paint, more often try to paint, and Peter wanted to run, to shoot through the poppies and feel the brush of the petals on his skin as the wind trailed behind him. That is lovely. Thank you. <laughs> so much wonderful imagery. Thank you. And it wasn't the four pages in one sentence. Can you tell us just a little bit about the decisions you made on the first page? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things I was trying to set up early on was the concept of the storytelling, the folklore, the magical realism aspect is it used to open up with Sam on a boat that's actually a bathtub in the middle of the ocean with a talking teddy bear. And I love the image. I loved the magical aspect of it, but it seemed to not really connect with my readers. They had a little bit of grotesque imagery just to set up that it's a little darker. It's not playful. It's not supposed to be playful, but it was keeping readers at the arm's distance. So by changing the opening to Peter and Sam going to visit the poppies, which is somewhere they would go to often enough and adding that opening little story about how his father stole the sun, it changed the connection that people made with the story. And it also really opened up that still the magical idea and people could connect to it. Oh, okay. There's going to be this aspect of either magical storytelling or folklore that can create those opportunities to really upend the natural world. I'm a big believer in images that we can relate to or picture or feel can help us get into a story that is in a world that's not quite ours. And for me, the image of touching a hot light bulb, that for me, because I'm like, okay, the world is close enough to ours. I know exactly what it feels like to be impatient and just grab the light bulb. So that to me made it seem that even if I didn't 100% understand everything else, I was right there with you. And I could see how if I was in a bathtub in the middle of the sea, I would wonder where I was and why. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you have no idea where you are when you're in the middle of the sea. <laughs> yeah, because the reader needs to feel a certain sense of comfort. You want it to be just exciting enough and interesting enough that they want to learn more. But you don't want them to go, huh, what's going on? Which happens to agents a lot because we have to read so fast. 
Yeah, I never even considered that concept. And now I'm looking back at all the agents I queried with that original opening chapter and thinking, oh, so it totally makes sense why they did not connect with this scene and why it was so much more valuable to start with a different starting point. Yeah, you have to assume that you've got about 30 seconds. And if we can't understand it in 30 seconds, either we choose to go back and read it again or we decide maybe I'm not the right agent because I just don't connect with it. I don't understand it. Valuable advice that younger me would have totally just sunk its teeth into. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you mean it angrily, that's fair. It's not fair that you have to optimize for a 30 second read. I was speaking with someone yesterday about how, OK, put this thought here. Make sure that the first and last lines of your paragraphs are where you want the emphasis. That's what people see when they skim. It's really unfortunate that this is what you have to optimize for, but you do. Absolutely. Maybe it's good advice for someone to take a course or, or read an article on what people see when they skim. So they know, just like what you said, what people see when they're skimming, first and last line emphasis. For me, it's, I have to always remind myself that although people don't necessarily read the first line of a novel and the last line of a novel at the same time, or right back to back, I always like to line them up and see, okay, is my first line of my novel and the last line of my novel connecting? Because then I know that I'm going from point A to point B like I want to. And if they're not connecting, then I have to reevaluate either how I'm starting or how I'm ending. I do wish we had a project to make writer's agent for a day so they could see what it's like, but there's not really an ethical way to do that at present. Yeah. Unless you write like a thousand query letters just for examples and dish them out to people. Sounds like a lot of work. Yes, definitely a lot of work. All right. Any final thoughts? Honestly, the only final thoughts I have are just of gratitude to you for making Manuscript Academy, for keeping it going, for being such an awesome community and for being such a wonderful place of support and encouragement. I know of nowhere else that gives you access to both the writing community and to agents to really get invaluable feedback on your query letter or your first page. I can't count how many times I had an agent look over my first page and or my query letter. And it's obviously it worked out. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you for everything. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.